0: Chapter nine, Part B of His Masterpiece by EMIL Zola, translated by Ernest Alfred Visitelli. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Lisa Reichert. At the close of another year, Claude, on one of those days of defeat when he fled from his miscarried picture, met an old acquaintance this time he had sworn he would never go home again and he had been tramping across paris since noon as if at his heels he had heard the wan spectre of the big nude figure of his picture ravaged by constant retouching and always left incomplete pursuing him with a passionate craving for birth the mist was melting into a yellowish drizzle befouling the muddy streets it was about five o'clock and he was crossing the Rue Royale like one walking in his sleep, at the risk of being run over, his clothes in rags and mud bespattered up to his neck, when a brougham suddenly drew up. Claude, eh? Claude! Is that how you pass your friends? It was Irma Bacot who spoke, Irma in a charming grey silk dress, covered with chantilly lace. She had hastily let down the window, and she sat smiling, beaming in the framework of the carriage door where are you going he staring at her open-mouthed replied that he was going nowhere at which she merrily expressed surprise in a loud voice looking at him with her saucy eyes get in then it's such a long while since we met said she get in or you'll be knocked down and in fact the other drivers were getting impatient and urging their horses on amidst a terrible din so he did as he was bidden, feeling quite dazed, and she drove him away, dripping with the unmistakable signs of his poverty upon him, in the broom lined with blue satin, where he sat partly on the lace of her skirt, while the cab-drivers jeered at the elopement before falling into line again. When Claude came back to the Rue Tourlac, he was in a dazed condition, and for a couple of days remained musing whether, after all, he might not have taken the wrong course in life. He seemed so strange that Christine questioned him, whereupon he at first stuttered and stammered, and finally confessed everything. There was a scene. She wept for a long while, then pardoned him once more, full of infinite indulgence for him. And indeed, amidst all her bitter grief, there sprang up a hope that he might yet return to her. For if he could deceive her thus, he could not care as much as she had imagined for that hateful painted creature who stared down from the big canvas. The days went by, and towards the middle of the winter, Claude's courage revived once more. One day, while putting some old frames in order, he came upon a roll of canvas which had fallen behind the other pictures. On opening the roll, he found on it the nude figure, the reclining woman of his old painting, in the open air, which he had cut out when the picture had come back to him from the salon of the rejected, and as he gazed at it, he uttered a cry of admiration. By the gods, how beautiful it is! He at once secured it to the wall with four nails, and remained for hours in contemplation before it. His hands shook the blood rushed to his face. Was it possible that he had painted such a masterly thing? He had possessed genius in those days then. So his skull, his eyes, his fingers had been changed. He became so feverishly excited, and felt such a need of unburthening himself to somebody, that at last he called his wife. "'Just come and have a look. Isn't her attitude good, eh? How delicately her muscles are articulated!' Just look at that bit there, full of sunlight, and at the shoulder here. Oh, heavens, it's full of life! I can feel it throb as I touch it. Christine, standing by, kept looking and answering in monosyllables. This resurrection of herself, after so many years, had at first flattered and surprised her, but on seeing him become so excited, she gradually felt uncomfortable and irritated, without knowing why. "'Tell me,' he continued, "'don't you think her beautiful enough for one to go on one's knees to her?' "'Yes, yes. But she has become rather blackish.' "'Claude protested vehemently. "'Become blackish? What an idea! "'That woman would never grow black. "'She possessed immortal youth.' "'Veritable passion had seized hold of him. "'He spoke of the figure as if of a living being. "'He had sudden longings to look at her "'that made him leave everything else.' "'as if he were hurrying to an appointment. "'Then one morning he was taken with a fit of work. "'But confound it all! "'As I did that, I can surely do it again,' he said. "'Ah, this time, unless I'm a downright brute, "'we'll see about it.' "'And Christine had to give him a sitting there and then. "'For eight hours a day, indeed, during a whole month, "'he kept her before him, without compassion "'for her increasing exhaustion or for the fatigue he felt himself.' he obstinately insisted upon producing a masterpiece. He was determined that the upright figure of his big picture should equal that reclining one which he saw on the wall, beaming with life. He constantly referred to it, compared it with the one he was painting, distracted by the fear of being unable to equal it. He cast one glance at it, another at Christine, and a third at his canvas, and burst into oaths whenever he felt dissatisfied. He ended, by abusing his wife. She was no longer young. Age had spoiled her figure, and that it was which spoiled his work. She listened and staggered in her very grief. Those sittings, from which she had already suffered so much, were becoming unbearable torture now. What was this new freak of crushing her with her own girlhood, of fanning her jealousy by filling her with regret for vanished beauty? She was becoming her own rival— she could no longer look at that old picture of herself without being stung at the heart by hateful envy. Ah, oh, how heavily had that picture, that study she had sat for long ago, weighed upon her existence. The whole of her misfortunes sprang from it. It had changed the current of her existence, and it had come to life again. It rose from the dead, endowed with greater vitality than herself, to finish killing her for there was no longer aught but one woman for Claude, she who was shown reclining on the old canvas, and who now arose and became the upright figure of his new picture. Then Christine felt herself growing older and older at each successive sitting, and she experienced the infinite despair which comes upon passionate women when love, like beauty, abandons them. Was it because of this that Claude no longer cared for her? That he sought refuge in an unnatural passion for his work? She soon lost all clear perception of things. She fell into a state of utter neglect, going about in a dressing-jacket and dirty petticoats, devoid of all coquettish feeling, discouraged by the idea that it was useless for her to continue struggling, since she had become old. There were occasionally abominable scenes between her and Claude, who this time, however, obstinately stuck to his work and finished his picture, swearing that, come what might, he would send it to the salon. He lived on his steps, cleaning up his backgrounds until dark. At last, thoroughly exhausted, he declared that he would touch the canvas no more, and Sandoz, on coming to see him one day at four o'clock, did not find him at home christine declared that he had just gone out to take a breath of air on the height of the montmartre the breach between claude and his friends had gradually widened with time the latter's visits had become brief and far between for they felt uncomfortable when they found themselves face to face with that disturbing style of painting and they were more and more upset by the unhinging of a mind which had been the admiration of their youth now all had fled none excepting Sandoz ever came. Gagniere had even left Paris, to settle down in one of the two houses he owned at Melun, where he lived frugally upon the proceeds of the other one, after suddenly marrying, to everyone's surprise, an old maid, his music-mistress, who played Wagner to him of an evening. As for Mahoudeau, he alleged work as an excuse for not coming, and indeed he was beginning to earn some money, thanks to a bronze manufacturer who employed him to touch up his models. Matters were different with Jory, whom no one saw since Matilda despotically kept him sequestrated. She had conquered him, and he had fallen into a kind of domesticity comparable to that of a faithful dog, yielding up the keys of his cash-box and only carrying enough money about him to buy a cigar at a time. It was even said that Mathilde, like the devotee she had once been, had thrown him into the arms of the church in order to consolidate her conquest, and that she was constantly talking to him about death, of which he was horribly afraid. Fagerolles alone affected a lively, cordial feeling towards his old friend Claude, whenever he happened to meet him. He then always promised to go and see him, but never did so. He was so busy, since his great success... In such a quest, advertised, celebrated, on the road to every imaginable honor and form of fortune, and Claude regretted nobody save Dubuche, to whom he still felt attached from a feeling of affection for the old reminiscences of boyhood, notwithstanding the disagreements which difference of disposition had provoked later on. But Dubuche, it appeared, was not very happy either. No doubt he was gorged with millions but he led a wretched life, constantly at loggerheads with his father-in-law, who complained of having been deceived with regard to his capabilities as an architect, and obliged to pass his life amidst the medicine bottles of his ailing wife and his two children, who, having been prematurely born, had to be reared virtually in cotton wool. Of all the old friends, therefore, there only remained Sandoz, who still found his way to the Rue Turac, he came thither for little Jacques, his godson, and for the sorrowing woman also, that Christine whose passionate features amidst all this distress moved him deeply, like a vision of one of the ardently amorous creatures whom he would have liked to embody in his books. But above all, his feeling of artistic brotherliness had increased since he had seen Claude losing ground, foundering amidst the heroic folly of art. At first he had remained utterly astonished at it, for he had believed in his friend more than in himself. Since their college days he had always placed himself second, while setting Claude very high on fame's ladder, on the same rung indeed as the masters who revolutionise a period. Then he had been grievously affected by that bankruptcy of genius. He had become full of bitter heartfelt pity at the sight of the horrible torture of impotency did one ever know who was the madman in art every failure touched him to the quick and the more a picture or a book verged upon aberration sank to the grotesque and lamentable the more did sandoz quiver with compassion the more did he long to lull to sleep in the soothing extravagance of their dreams those who were thus blasted by their own work on the day when Sandoz called, and failed to find Claude at home, he did not go away. But seeing Christine's eyelids red with crying, he said, "'If you think that he'll be in soon, I'll wait for him.' "'Oh, he surely won't be long. In that case, I'll wait, unless I'm in your way.' Never had her demeanour, the crushed look of a neglected woman, her listless movements, her slow speech, her indifference for everything but the passion that was consuming her, moved him so deeply for the last week perhaps she had not put a chair in its place or dusted a piece of furniture and left the place to go to rack and ruin scarcely having the strength to drag herself about and it was enough to break one's heart to behold that misery ending in filth beneath the glaring light from the big window to gaze on that ill-pargeted shanty so bare and disorderly where one shivered with melancholy although it was a bright february afternoon christine had slowly sat down beside an iron bedstead which sandoz had not noticed when he came in allo he said is jacques ill she was covering up the child who constantly flung off the bedclothes yes he hasn't been up these three days we brought his bed in here so that he might be with us he was never very strong but he's getting worse and worse it's distracting she had a fixed stare in her eyes and spoke in a monotonous tone, and Sandoz felt frightened when he drew up to the bedside. The child's pale head seemed to have grown bigger still, so heavy that he could no longer support it. He lay perfectly still, and one might have thought he was dead, but for the heavy breathing coming from between his discoloured lips. "'My poor little Jacques, it's I, your godfather. Won't you say, how do you do?' The child made a fruitless, painful effort to lift his head. His eyelids parted, showing his white eyeballs, then closed again. "'Have you sent for a doctor?' Christine shrugged her shoulders. "'Oh, doctors, what do they know?' she answered. "'We sent for one. He said that there was nothing to be done. Let us hope that it will pass over again. He is close upon twelve years old now, and maybe he is growing too fast.' sandoz quite chilled said nothing for fear of increasing her anxiety since she did not seem to realize the gravity of the disease he walked about in silence and stopped in front of the picture ho ho it's getting on it's on the right road this time it's finished what finished and when she told him that the canvas was to be sent to the salon that next week he looked embarrassed and sat down on the couch like a man who wishes to judge the work leisurely. The background, the quays, the seine, whence arose the triumphal point of the cité, still remained in a sketchy state. Masterly, however, but as if the painter had been afraid of spoiling the Paris of his dream by giving it greater finish. There was also an excellent group on the left, the lighter men unloading the sacks of plaster, being carefully and powerfully treated. But the boat full of women in the centre, transpierced the picture as it were with a blaze of flesh tints which were quite out of place and the brilliancy and hallucinatory proportions of the large nude figure which claude had painted in a fever seemed strangely disconcertingly false amidst the reality of all the rest sandoz silent felt despair steal over him as he sat in front of that magnificent failure but he saw Christine's eyes fixed upon him, and had sufficient strength of mind to say, "'Astounding! The woman, astounding!' At that point Claude came in, and on seeing his old chum he uttered a joyous exclamation and shook his hand vigorously. Then he approached Christine and kissed little Jacques, who had once more thrown off the bedclothes. How is he? Just the same. "'To be sure, to be sure!' HE IS GROWING TOO FAST. A FEW DAYS' REST WILL SET HIM ALL RIGHT. I TOLD YOU NOT TO BE UNEASY. AND Claude THEREUPON SAT DOWN BESIDE Sandoz ON THE COUCH. THEY BOTH TOOK THEIR EASE, LEANING BACK WITH THEIR EYES SURVEYING THE PICTURE, WHILE CHRISTINE, SEATED BY THE BED, LOOKED AT NOTHING, AND SEEMINGLY THOUGHT OF NOTHING, IN THE EVERLASTING DESOLATION OF HER HEART. NIGHT WAS SLOWLY COMING ON. THE VIVID LIGHT FROM THE WINDOW PALED ALREADY. "'losing its sheen amidst the slowly falling, crepuscular dimness. "'So it's settled. "'Your wife told me that you were going to send it in. "'Yes. "'You are right. "'You had better have done with it once for all. "'Oh, there are some magnificent bits in it. "'The key in perspective to the left. "'The man who shoulders that sack below. "'But... "'He hesitated, then finally took the bull by the horns. "'But it's odd that you have persisted in leaving those women nude.' it isn't logical i assure you and besides you promised me you would dress them don't you remember you have set your heart upon them very much then yes claude answered curtly with the obstinacy of one mastered by a fixed idea and unwilling to give any explanations then he crossed his arms behind his head and began talking of other things without however taking his eyes off his picture over which the twilight began to cast a slight shadow do you know where i have just come from he asked i have been to courajot's you know the great landscape painter whose pond of gagny is at the luxembourg you remember i thought he was dead and we were told that he lived hereabouts on the other side of the hill in the rue de la brouvoir well old boy he worried me did courajot while taking a breath of air now and then up there i discovered his shanty AND I COULD NO LONGER PASS IN FRONT OF IT WITHOUT WANTING TO GO INSIDE. JUST THINK, A MASTER, A MAN WHO INVENTED OUR MODERN LANDSCAPE SCHOOL, AND WHO LIVES THERE, UNKNOWN, DONE FOR, LIKE A MOLE IN ITS HOLE. YOU CAN HAVE NO IDEA OF THE STREET OR THE caboose A VILLAGE STREET FULL OF FOWLS AND BORDERED BY GRASSY BANKS, AND A caboose LIKE A CHILD'S TOY WITH TINY WINDOWS, A TINY DOOR, A TINY GARDEN, Oh, the garden, a mere patch of soil, sloping down abruptly, with a bed where four pear-trees stand, and the rest taken up by a fowl-house, made out of green boards, old plaster, and wire network, held together with bits of string. His words came slowly. He blinked while he spoke, as if the thought of his picture had returned to him, and was gradually taking possession of him to such a degree as to hamper him in his speech about other matters. Well, as luck would have it, I found Courageaud on his doorstep today, an old man of more than eighty, wrinkled and shrunk to the size of a boy. I should like you to see him, with his clogs, his peasant's jersey, and his coloured handkerchief wound over his head, as if he were an old market-woman. I pluckily went up to him, saying, Monsieur Courageaud, I know you very well. You have a picture in the Luxembourg gallery, which is a masterpiece.' Allow a painter to shake hands with you, as he would with his master. And then you should have seen him take fright, draw back and stutter, as if I were going to strike him, a regular flight. However, I followed him, and gradually he recovered his composure, and showed me his hens, his ducks, his rabbits and dogs, an extraordinary collection of birds and beasts. There was even a raven among them. He lives in the midst of them all. HE SPEAKS TO NO ONE BUT HIS ANIMALS. AS FOR THE VIEW, IT'S SIMPLY MAGNIFICENT. YOU SEE THE WHOLE OF THE SAINT DENIS PLAIN FOR MILES UPON MILES. RIVERS AND TOWNS, SMOKING FACTORY CHIMNEYS, AND PUFFING RAILWAY ENGINES. IN SHORT, THE PLACE IS A REAL HERMITAGE ON A HILL, WITH ITS BACK TURNED TO PARIS, AND ITS EYES FIXED ON THE BOUNDLESS COUNTRY. AS A MATTER OF COURSE, I CAME BACK TO HIS PICTURE oh monsieur courajote i said what talent you showed if you only knew how much we all admire you you are one of our illustrious men you'll remain the ancestor of us all but his lips began to tremble again he looked at me with an air of terror-stricken stupidity i am sure he would not have waved me back with a more imploring gesture if i had unearthed under his very eyes the corpse of some forgotten comrade of his youth he kept chewing disconnected words between his toothless gums. It was the mumbling of an old man who had sunk into second childhood, and whom it's impossible to understand. Don't know. So long ago. Too old. Don't care a rap. To make a long story short, he showed me the door. I heard him hurriedly turn the key in the lock, barricading himself and his birds and animals against the admiration of the outside world ah my good fellow the idea of it that great man ending his life like a retired grocer that voluntary relapse into nothingness even before death ah the glory the glory for which we others are ready to die claude's voice which had sunk lower and lower died away at last in a melancholy sigh darkness was still coming on after gradually collecting in the corners, it rose like a slow, inexorable tide, first submerging the legs of the chairs and the table, all the confusion of things that littered the tiled floor. The lower part of the picture was already growing dim, and Claude, with his eyes still desperately fixed on it, seemed to be watching the ascent of the darkness, as if he had at last judged his work in the expiring light." and no sound was heard save the stertorous breathing of the sick child near whom there still loomed the dark silhouette of the motionless mother then sandoz spoke in his turn his hands also crossed behind his head and his back resting against one of the cushions of the couch does one ever know would it not be better perhaps to live and die unknown what a cell it would be if artistic glory existed no more than the paradise which is talked about in catechisms and which even children nowadays make fun of we who no longer believe in the divinity still believe in our own immortality what a farce it all is then affected to melancholy himself by the mournfulness of the twilight and stirred by all the human suffering he beheld around him he began to speak of his own torments look here old man i whom you envy perhaps yes i who am beginning to get on in the world as middle-class people say i who publish books and earn a little money well i am being killed by it all i have often already told you this but you don't believe me because as you only turn out work with a great deal of trouble and cannot bring yourself to public notice happiness in your eyes could naturally consist in producing a great deal in being seen and praised or slated well get admitted to the next salon get into the thick of the battle paint other pictures and then tell me whether that suffices and whether you are happy at last listen work has taken up the whole of my existence little by little it has robbed me of my mother of my wife of everything i love it is like a germ thrown into the cranium which feeds on the brain finds its way into the trunk and limbs and gnaws up the whole of the body the moment i jump out of bed of a morning work clutches hold of me rivets me to my desk without leaving me time to get a breath of fresh air then it pursues me at luncheon i audibly chew my sentences with my bread next it accompanies me when i go out comes back with me and dines off the same plate as myself lies down with me on my pillow so utterly pitiless that i am never able to set the book in hand on one side indeed its growth continues even in the depth of my sleep and nothing outside of it exists for me true i go upstairs to embrace my mother but in so absent-minded a way that ten minutes after leaving her i ask myself whether i have really been to wish her good morning my poor wife has no husband i am not with her even when our hands touch sometimes i have an acute feeling that i am making their lives very sad and i feel very remorseful for happiness is solely composed of kindness frankness and gaiety in one's home but how can i escape from the claws of the monster i at once relapse into the somnambulism of my working hours into the indifference and moroseness of my fixed idea if the pages i have written during the morning have been worked off all right so much the better if one of them has remained in distress so much the worse the household will laugh or cry according to the whim of that all devouring monster work no no i have nothing that i can call my own in my days of poverty i dreamt of rest in the country of travel in distant lands AND NOW THAT I MIGHT MAKE THOSE DREAMS REALITY, THE WORK THAT HAS BEGUN KEEPS ME SHUT UP. THERE IS NO CHANCE OF A WALK IN THE MORNING SUN, NO CHANCE OF RUNNING ROUND TO A FRIEND'S HOUSE, OR OF A MAD BOUT OF idleness. MY STRENGTH OF WILL HAS GONE WITH THE REST. ALL THIS HAS BECOME A HABIT. I HAVE LOCKED THE DOOR OF THE WORLD BEHIND ME AND THROWN THE KEY OUT THE WINDOW. THERE IS NO LONGER ANYTHING IN MY DEN BUT WORK AND MYSELF and work will devour me, and then there will be nothing left, nothing at all. He paused, and silence reigned once more in the deepening gloom. Then he began again with an effort. And if one were only satisfied, if one only got some enjoyment out of such a nigger's life, ah, oh, I should like to know how those fellows manage who smoke cigarettes and complacently stroke their beards while they are at work yes it appears to me that there are some who find production an easy pleasure to be set aside or taken up without the least excitement they are delighted they admire themselves they cannot write a couple of lines but they find those lines of a rare distinguished matchless quality well as for myself i bring forth in anguish and my offspring seems a horror to me how can a man be sufficiently wanting in self-doubt as to believe in himself it absolutely amazes me to see men who furiously deny talent to everybody else lose all critical acumen all common sense when it becomes a question of their own bastard creations why a book is always very ugly to like it one mustn't have had a hand in the cooking of it i say nothing of the jug's full of insults that are showered upon one instead of annoying they rather encourage me i see men who are upset by attacks who feel a humiliating craving to win sympathy it is a simple question of temperament some women would die if they failed to please but to my thinking insult is a very good medicine to take unpopularity is a very manly school to be brought up in nothing keeps one in such good health and strength as the hooting of a crowd of imbeciles it suffices that a man can say that he has given his life's blood to his work that he expects neither immediate justice nor serious attention that he works without hope of any kind and simply because the love of work beats beneath his skin like his heart irrespective of any will of his own if he can do all this he may die in the effort with the consoling illusion that he will be appreciated one day or other ah if the others only knew how jauntily i bear the weight of their anger only there is my own caller which overwhelms me i fret that i cannot live for a moment happy what hours of misery i spend great heavens from the very day i begin a novel during the first chapters there isn't so much trouble I have plenty of room before me in which to display genius. But afterwards I become distracted, and am never satisfied with the daily task. I condemn the book before it is finished, judging it inferior to its elders, and I torture myself about certain pages, about certain sentences, certain words, so that at last the very commas assume an ugly look, from which I suffer. And when it is finished, ah, when it is finished, what a relief! Not the enjoyment of the gentleman who exalts himself in the worship of his offspring, but the curse of the labourer who throws down the burden that has been breaking his back. Then, later on, with another book, it all begins afresh. It will always begin afresh, and I shall die under it, furious with myself, exasperated at not having had more talent." enraged at not leaving a work more complete of greater dimensions books upon books a pile of mountain height and at my death i shall feel horrible doubts about the task i may have accomplished asking myself whether i ought not to have gone to the left when i went to the right and my last word my last gasp will be to recommence the whole over again he was thoroughly moved the words stuck in his throat he was obliged to draw breath for a moment before delivering himself of this passionate cry in which all his impenitent lyricism took wing ah life a second span of life who shall give it to me that work may rob me of it again that i may die of it once more it had now become quite dark the mother's rigid silhouette was no longer visible. The hoarse breathing of the child sounded amidst the obscurity like a terrible and distant signal of distress, uprising from the streets. In the whole studio, which had become lugubriously black, the big canvas only showed a glimpse of pallidity. a last vestige of the waning daylight. The nude figure, similar to an agonizing vision, seemed to be floating about without definite shape, the legs having already vanished, one arm being already submerged, and the only part at all distinct being the trunk, which shone like a silvery moon. After a protracted pause, Sandoz inquired, "'Shall I go with you when you take your picture?' Getting no answer from Claude, he fancied he could hear him crying. Was it with the same infinite sadness the despair in which he himself had been stirred just now?' he waited for a moment, then repeated his question, and at last the painter, after choking down a sob, stammered, "'Thanks. The picture will remain here. I shan't send it.' "'What? Why, you had made up your mind?' "'Yes, yes, I had made up my mind. But I had not seen it as I saw it just now in the waning daylight. I have failed with it, failed with it again. It struck my eyes like a blow.' It went to my very heart. His tears now flowed slow and scalding in the gloom that hid him from sight. He had been restraining himself, and now the silent anguish which had consumed him burst forth despite all his efforts. My dear friend, said Sandoz, quite upset, it is hard to tell you so, but all the same you are right, perhaps, in delaying matters, to finish certain parts rather more. "'Still I am angry with myself, for I shall imagine that it was I who discouraged you "'by my everlasting stupid discontent with things.' "'Claude simply answered, "'You! What an idea! I was not even listening to you. "'No, I was looking, and I saw everything go helter-skelter in that confounded canvas. "'The light was dying away, and all at once, in the greyish dusk, "'the scales suddenly dropped from my eyes.' THE BACKGROUND ALONE IS PRETTY. THE NUDE WOMAN IS ALTOGETHER TOO LOUD. WHAT'S MORE, SHE'S OUT OF THE PERPENDICULAR, AND HER LEGS ARE BADLY DRAWN. WHEN I NOTICED THAT, ah, oh, IT WAS ENOUGH TO KILL ME THERE AND THEN. I FELT LIFE DEPARTING FROM ME. THEN THE GLOOM KEPT RISING AND RISING, BRINGING A WHIRLING SENSATION, A FOUNDERING OF EVERYTHING, THE EARTH ROLLING INTO CHAOS, THE END OF THE WORLD. AND SOON I ONLY SAW THE TRUNK, "'waning like a sickly moon. "'And look, look, there now remains nothing of her, "'not a glimpse. "'She is dead, quite black.' "'In fact, the picture had at last entirely disappeared. "'But the painter had risen and could be heard swearing "'in the dense obscurity. "'Dee at all? it doesn't matter. "'I'll set to work at it again.' "'Then Christine, who had also risen from her chair, against which he stumbled, interrupted him, saying, "'Take care. I'll light the lamp.' She lighted it and came back, looking very pale, casting a glance of hatred and fear at the picture. "'It was not to go, then. The abomination was to begin once more.' "'I'll set to work at it again,' repeated Claude. "'And it shall kill me. It shall kill my wife, my child, the whole lot.' by heaven, it shall be a masterpiece. Christine sat down again. They approached Jock, who had thrown the clothes off once more with his feverish little hands. He was still breathing heavily, lying quite inert, his head buried in the pillow like a weight, with which the bed seemed to creak. When Sandoz was on the point of going, he expressed his uneasiness. The mother appeared stupefied, while the father was already returning to his picture, the masterpiece which awaited creation and the thought of which filled him with such passionate illusions that he gave less heed to the painful reality of the sufferings of his child, the true living flesh of his flesh. On the following morning, Claude had just finished dressing when he heard Christine calling in a frightened voice. She also had just woke with a start from the heavy sleep which had benumbed her, while she sat watching the sick child claude claude oh look he is dead the painter rushed forward with heavy eyes stumbling and apparently failing to understand for he repeated it with an air of profound amazement what do you mean by saying he is dead for a moment they remained staring wildly at the bed the poor little fellow with his disproportionate head the head of the progeny of genius exaggerated as to verge upon Cretanism, did not appear to have stirred since the previous night, but no breath came from his mouth which had widened and become discoloured, and his glassy eyes were open. His father laid his hands upon him and found him icy cold. It is true, he is dead, and their stupor was such that for yet another moment they remained with their eyes dry, simply thunderstruck, as it were, by the abruptness of that death which they considered incredible. Then, her knees bending under her, Christine dropped down in front of the bed, bursting into violent sobs which shook her from head to foot, and wringing her hands whilst her forehead remained pressed against the mattress. In that first moment of horror, her despair was aggravated above all by poignant remorse. The remorse of not having sufficiently cared for the poor child. Former days started up before her in a rapid vision, each bringing with it regretfulness for unkind words, deferred caresses, rough treatment even. And now it was all over. She would never be able to compensate the lad for the affection she had withheld from him. HE WHOM SHE THOUGHT SO DISOBEDIENT HAD OBEYED BUT TOO WELL AT LAST. SHE HAD SO OFTEN TOLD HIM WHEN AT PLAY TO BE STILL AND NOT TO DISTURB HIS FATHER AT HIS WORK, THAT HE WAS QUIET AT LAST AND FOREVER. THE IDEA SUFFOCATED HER. EACH SOB DREW FROM HER A DULL MOAN. CLAUDE HAD BEGUN WALKING UP AND DOWN THE STUDIO, UNABLE TO REMAIN STILL. With his features convulsed, he shed a few big tears which he brushed away with the back of his hand, and whenever he passed in front of the little corpse, he could not help glancing at it. The glassy eyes, wide open, seemed to exercise a spell over him. At first he resisted, but a confused idea assumed shape within him, and could not be shaken off. He yielded to it at last, took a small canvas, and began to paint a study of the dead child— for the first few minutes his tears dimmed his sight, wrapping everything in a mist. But he kept wiping them away, and persevered with his work, even though his brush shook. Then the passion for art dried his tears and steadied his hand, and in a little while it was no longer his icy sun that lay there, but merely a model, a subject, the strange interest of which stirred him. That huge head, that waxy flesh those eyes which looked like holes staring into space all excited and thrilled him he stepped back seemed to take pleasure in his work and vaguely smiled at it when christine rose from her knees she found him thus occupied then bursting into tears again she merely said ah you can paint him now he'll never stir again for five hours Claude kept at it, and on the second day, when Sandoz came back with him from the cemetery after the funeral, he shuddered with pity and admiration at the sight of the small canvas. It was one of the fine bits of former days, a masterpiece of limpidity and power, to which was added a note of boundless melancholy, the end of everything, all life ebbing away with the death of that child. But Sandoz, who had burst into exclamations full of praise, was quite taken aback on hearing Claude say to him, You are sure you like it? In that case, as the other machine isn't ready, I'll send this to the salon. End of chapter 9